Hey, good morning. It's Montel Williams, and you know where you're listening to. You're listening to Let's Be Blunt. And what's Let's Be Blunt? Let's Be Blunt is a conversation about everything cannabis and really anything else that you want to talk about. But we're focusing on cannabis and we're focusing on marijuana legislation. We're focusing on discussions about why it's taken this country so long to accept a viable medical medicinal agent that's brought relief to so many. And I am so pleased this morning to have an opportunity to talk to somebody who literally, really, I think, needs to take the credit for changing the entire discussion about marijuana worldwide. And that person, ladies and gentlemen, is neurosurgeon and CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Thank you so much, Sanjay, for being with us today. Let me give you a applause myself. <laughs> Well, Montel, thank you for for that, and and uh, I mean, that's that's uh, that means a lot coming from you, and and thank you. I mean, you you've been beating the drum on this issue for a long time, and you and I both know that there's people out there that have been talking about this uh, even longer than us, who who often did not they they weren't heard, and so to the extent that we can amplify those voices and and all that, I think it's I think it's very important. So I appreciate that, sir. Yes, sir. No, thank you, and I I really. You know, I'd love for you to comment on this this comment, and that is, until you did your first CNN special, literally the jury was out. I think the nation had a less than 61% of the nation supported medical marijuana. Your CNN special aired, and all of a sudden, the support jumped to 80 plus percent, and now, sits somewhere around 86, 87% of the entire nation believes that doctors should have an option to be able to prescribe marijuana to patients as they see fit. And patients should really have access to efficacious medication in the form of marijuana if their doctor also prescribes. So comment on that. And how does that make you feel knowing that You've literally changed this conversation worldwide. Well, um, you, you know, it's it's very gratifying. I think I, I certainly I think as journalists, one of the things that we always hope for, and it's hard to measure, is is some sort of impact as a result of the the reporting. Um, but you know, you, you you don't always see it or or feel it. In, in this case, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a bit more tangible. I think in some ways, if you think about it, Montel, and again, you and I have talked about this, but the, you know, the media in many ways has, has long been sort of shaping public opinion about, about medical marijuana. I mean, going back to the 30s, when you, when you talked about Reefer Madness, it was a film that in many ways uh, you know, set the, the tone and, and the sentiment for an entire generation, a couple generations of people and their attitudes toward this. So it's, it's amazing in some ways that it hasn't been science, really, that has driven the discussion as much as it's been the, the, the media portrayal in the past. Now, you know, actually being able to report on, on science from the United States, but also from around the world, and making that clear to people, I think is in part what has, has fueled these, these, these changes in perceptions. So it's gratifying, and, and the numbers continue to grow, as you know. I mean, in almost every state now, and, and Puerto Rico, there is some form of medical marijuana uh, legislation on the books. Absolutely. And, you know, let's talk a little bit about that science. When you say science, I mean, a lot of people don't know, people who are listening right now to this podcast, don't know that hmm. the United States government has been involved in scientific research 
for medical marijuana for over 40 years now through a program at the University of Mississippi. The United States government also was the primary funder of research through Dr. Mishulam's efforts in Israel. And Dr. Mishulam, for those who don't know, is a gentleman who has been accredited with discovering not only THC, but CBD, and also then going on to discover what is called the endocannabinoid system, which seems to have has sparked such a lot of interest around the world. And this was research that was done, funded by the U.S. government. So what, what baffles me so much, Sanjay, is that, you know, when you, you saw oh, a couple of weeks ago when you know, the FDA held their forum in Washington, D.C., you know, several of the doctors there said, well, there needs to be more research. I have to ask the question, after 40 years, how much more research do we need? Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's there's no question, and there's a there's a built-in hypocrisy here because uh, for for a long time, you know, you're, you're talking about this substance being classified as a Schedule One substance, which means as part of the the criteria for that is that it's preordained as having no medical benefit. So in some ways, they already reached the conclusion without having research. They, either this was more social and cultural factors impacting that decision versus scientific ones. And, and, and that's, that's a real concern for science no matter what. And when they talk about specifically this idea that, that uh, it, it did not have medical benefit, even in the original paperwork in the early 70s when they talked about this, they said, we expect studies that are forthcoming to show that there is a medicinal benefit. And yet for, you know, 40 years, 50 years, th there's, you know, they, those, those studies either weren't done or they were ignored. So it's been a, a true hypocrisy. The United States government has funded research. They have a patent on, on uh, cannabis as a neuroprotectant, something that protects the brain. And yet they left this a Schedule One substance, which it, which it wasn't. It didn't meet the criteria for that. And well, what's really shocking to me is, I don't know if you saw this article uh, that came out last week, that the federal government just, this, is, this, this blows my mind. Okay, we've taken a substance that's called ketamine that for those at home that don't know what ketamine is, ketamine is a horse tranquilizer. That's what it was originally made for. And now they've been looking at it to see if it has some effects in other areas. But they literally have approved ketamine, which really a hallucinogen, which should be a Schedule One drug. And they are going to okay its being prescribed for PTSD for soldiers, yet we already recognize worldwide, and as a matter of fact, Israel has looked at cannabis as a treatment for PTSD for now over 15 years, but we will prove something like ketamine, which is a hallucinogen that causes all kinds of secondary issues from kidney failure to you know, adrenal failure, all kinds of issues, we don't prove that, yet we still say that soldiers shouldn't use cannabis. I, 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 can you explain that to me? Well, it's 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 uh, it's a difficult thing to explain. I think because we are seeing this this true this true collision between our cultural attitude towards something and the scientific data. I, I I don't think I've seen anything quite like this in my entire medical career, where where something is so influenced by our perceptions of something, even when the data exists. Uh, 
usually in the scientific community, I mean, people put scientific evidence first, even if it is at odds with what their original belief system was. Now, I will say with ketamine, it's, it's, it's very interesting. You're, all, all the points you made about it, I think, are very valid. But the idea that something like ketamine could have medicinal value, could even act as a, as a rescue drug for people who are imminently suicidal, uh, you're seeing some some evidence of that, and that may be driving its 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 uh, its acceptance. To your question, your point, Montel, the idea that you talk about cannabis, something that from a side effect profile has a very low side effect profile, where there haven't been documented cases of people overdosing from this uh, when they take cannabis by itself, why there's still so much resistance to that versus something like ketamine. I think is, is, is something that we will reflect on, you know, in, in the future. I don't know when in the future, maybe, maybe a few years, maybe a decade from now. And we'll see that we really allowed, uh, longstanding attitudes, generational attitudes toward this substance that was baked into politics, baked into our culture and all that, uh, overrule what was good science. And I, and I, you know, the, the tragedy of it is, is that people who could benefit from this, people who could get help from cannabis aren't getting it. At some point for me, Montel, and I know for you, uh, this wasn't just a case of showing that this could be a medicine. This was a case of showing that this could work when nothing else worked. And at that point, it's almost like a trigger flip. It wasn't just a medical issue anymore. It was a, a moral issue that you would deny someone a beneficial therapy for a child's refractory seizures, for someone who is suffering from opioid addiction, whatever it might be, that you deny them this therapy because of a longstanding cultural, clinging on to a longstanding cultural belief, I think is a shame and a tragedy. And, and, and luckily, you know, the population of the country in this case is speaking up and, 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 and recognizing that there's real value here to this. And I think part of that reason for the for the population and the, you know the, the constituents to step forward is because we've reached that tipping point in America where you know the, the, let's go back for a minute. Most people don't even understand that marijuana was made illegal by something called the Marijuana Tax Act, and that was a a, a law that went into place back in 1937 and was literally. Uh, pushed by one individual who was backed by two very, very, very powerful at their time millionaires, but if it was today, would be billionaires, William Randolph Hearst and Mr. DuPont, who were trying to make sure that, number one, Hearst wanted to make sure he could continue to cut down trees and use that for paper, and I think DuPont was really trying his best to make us understand that there was, you know, uh, uh, more money to be made in pharmaceuticals in the mm -hmm. sense of figuring out what to do with oil-based products and making sure that became part of society. But from like the, in, the, in the late 1800s, 1850s to 1890s, you know, when the temperance movement started in America and people were trying to get alcohol out of the country and we had prohibition and prohibition movement began, you know, lots of doctors back then, and we must remember that Marijuana was included in the pharmacopoeia mm -hmm. of America, written by the U.S. government as a medical agent. But back then, doctors would recommend marijuana over alcohol because they didn't see the same violent outbursts and, and, and spousal abuse that they were seeing with alcohol. So all of a sudden, there's something to be vilified in a way, the way marijuana was vilified, 
you know, I mean, I have my own opinion, and my opinion has a lot to do with the fact that this gave the country an opportunity to enslave people in a different way. I mean, when we take a look at all of the overall marijuana arrests since the 1930s, 80% of them have been against people of color. So in an effort to fix this problem that they lost when slavery was abolished, they could enslave people by putting them in jail. And, you know, by ensuring that, and back then, during the 30s, the 20s and 30s, cannabis was used by people of color, especially people in the farming industry, because, you know, let's think about it. You know, we're talking about a time in the 20s and the 30s where there was no air conditioning. You know, you didn't have a lot of ice. And people were out working in the field all day long. And, you know, did they want to do something that made them feel a little bit better while they were out picking things? Yeah, they did. And there were other people around the world who understood marijuana's medicinal purposes, like in Jamaica and in India. Right. You know, it was always used as a medicinal agent. So my opinion is kind of like, you know, I think if we took a look back and really looked hard at what our efforts have been to ensure that this stayed vilified, it was as if we didn't care that there was a benefit. I, I think back on, you know, thalidomide. When we recognized that thalidomide was being, you know, uh, prescribed uh, for, for morning sickness and for other pregnancy issues, mm-hmm. we realized what about five years ago, six years ago, that thalidomide has some beneficial attributes in other illnesses, and science has accepted that. This is a drug that caused some of the most horrific birth defects in the history of mankind. Yet we are now prescribing it because we found legitimate medical purpose. I don't understand why the medical community is fighting so hard against cannabis. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. I think I think when you go back to the to the point about William Randolph Hearst and and Dupont, and you really start to to sort of uh, focus on a couple things here. One is that you know they, the the saying is as you know that if you start to really chase the money, you start to get maybe. A greater insight into what has driven some of this, and I think there's no question that um, our our cultural beliefs uh, we were systematically misled with regard to cannabis in a very strategic way, and a lot of it had to do with 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 money. You know, the idea that cannabis could somehow be beneficial in a way that pharmaceuticals either could not or could be as beneficial as some of those pharmaceuticals that were, uh, you know, source of tremendous revenue for these companies, that even hemp could be a competitor to products like nylon. I mean, uh, ultimately, you know, when you have William Randolph Hearst, who, who is, you know, involved with some of these companies, and then also is one of the funders, primary funder of Reefer Madness, you start to get a sense of just how our beliefs are shaped in ways that we don't fully realize. Someone who could benefit financially from this, uh, of having marijuana be demonized, starts to really uh, fund and create these these perception campaigns that, that become very long-lasting, that last generations. Even the term marijuana itself is a pejorative term. It is, it is cannabis. Cannabis is the name of the plant. And I think even when we started to call it marijuana decades ago, that was a sort of in, in, insidious um, uh, way of, of sort of demonizing this as well. 
It became associated with people who were poor performers, lazy, all, all these things. And that was a strategic sort of way of, of changing people's perceptions of, of marijuana. Again, hardly anything to do with science. It was part of the pharmacopoeia. Doctors realized it could be a treatment for addiction. They were prescribing it. It was being used in other countries quite effectively. Uh, all that stuff was sort of countermanded by the fact that all of a sudden it was a threat, I think financially primarily, but a threat in, in other ways as well. And that's why we are still we've got this hangover with regard to cannabis, uh, with regard yeah, exactly. to our perception of it. When you nailed the fact that, you know, DuPont, who's a guy who's trying to create things that are textiles. And textiles used to have based out of, you know, um, um, chemicals that literally didn't appear in nature. Well, you know, right. those people need to understand that, you know, the only thing that the North and the South had in common in the Civil War was that their uniforms were made from hemp cloth. Right. You know, every sail used in the U.S. military and even through and every rope through World War II was hemp-based rope. So, you know, it's not as if we didn't, you know, recognize the value. I mean, you know, the, the, the Nina the Pinta and the Santa Maria, you know, all had, and the Mayflower, all had hemp sails, hemp rope, hemp clay that was literally used in between the, the wood on the ship to, to keep it from leaking. And when you talk about marijuana, you know, the term marijuana literally was created basically based on a, a common military slang term used for prostitution and brothels in Mexico. You know, Mary, Mary Jane. That's where this came from. This is in the 1800s. But before that, we were using the term cannabis. And cannabis, really, they think in some ways is related to the word canvas. Because the word canvas, all the canvas-covered wagons that went out west were made from hemp. People don't want to understand that, you know, and, and I say this loosely, but, you know, this is a nation that was built on hemp and cannabis. Go back to the late 1600s, early 1700s, and I hate to be so crude as I said, but, you know, people were still wiping their rear ends with leaves back then. There was no air conditioning. There was no central air, no fans, you know, and, um, you know, all of our forefathers, almost every single one of them, including George Washington, grew hemp. Thomas Jefferson has been quoted as to one of the one of the best things he's did in his life was sit on his back porch and smoke a hemp cigarette. So I don't understand how in a very short period of time, you know, the country's been around for 340 years, and in less than 100 years, we've vilified something that literally is now going to take us another 100 years to take the stigma off of. Where do you think it goes from here, Sanjay? Because, I mean, I think since you're special – and you enlightened so many people and made people to stop for a second and think. It just seems to me that there is, you know, probably 50% of the research that's being done worldwide on medical marijuana is being done to look at the positive effects. But there is still another 50% of that research being done to try to see if it can pull out anything negative it can possibly pull out. It's almost as if Rather than trying to prove its efficacy, we are doing more research to try to prove why it still should be stigmatized. How do we break through to get doctors to recognize that there might be something good here? Well, you know, I think back in 2013 when we did the first uh, film, Weed, uh, you look at those numbers, about 94% of the studies that we found being being funded federally in the United States 
94% were, were designed to look for harm, and only 6% were designed to look for benefit. And so even going to closer to 50-50, as you say, is obviously a significant, a significant improvement. I'll tell you, I think that there's, there's um, many ways, many places, directions it goes from here. One thing at a very sort of fundamental level as, as, a, as a doctor who works in a hospital, I can tell you that you know, young scientists and, and people who are starting their labs were not getting involved in cannabis research as much um, a few years ago, 10 years ago, because they knew they'd have a very hard time getting any of their studies funded. Um, so you just had you had people who just weren't getting getting involved in this sort of research, and that's that's changing tremendously. Even at big universities now, name brand universities that in the past may have uh, still felt the same stigma said, you know what, it's interesting, but we just as soon stay away from it. We think it could be a political hot potato. You know, we we worry about the funding coming from the government. You're starting to see that change at, at at big, you know, university hospitals. I also think that you know one thing that's happening is that the public enthusiasm for for cannabis and and more specifically even CBD, in some ways, has accelerated at such a rapid pace now that um, you do need the scientists to step in and start to provide some framework and some guidance on what is safe, what is acceptable, what is going to likely to provide benefit because you're you're running into a situation where where it sort of feels like the wild west. On one hand, the government sort of stepped uh, off the job by just preordaining this as a schedule 1 substance. Now, since the farm bill has allowed CBD hemp to be legalized federally, you're seeing this this rush to adoption that that also doesn't have any guidance from the federal government. So they they've sort of uh, you know been been off the job in both situations at the beginning overregulating it and now not offering enough guidance for consumers. So they have to do that. That has to happen. And I think we are going to see ultimately. I think we're going to see a brand new class of medications. Something I haven't seen in my my career as a doctor a brand new class of medications that are based on cannabis that are going to be used uh, to, to, to provide help and relief for all sorts of conditions. Yeah, and, you know, and I wanted to say, now, now so I, I 100% support everything that you have done in this effort. I, I, but one of the things that I, I've said in, in some of my recent speeches, especially uh, speaking to groups around the country about the viability of cannabinoids, is that you know, unfortunately, when people watch your special, they walk away thinking that the only thing that's of any value in the marijuana plant is CBD. Right. Whereas we know for a fact that Dr. Mishulam, who is a doctor who discovered cannabinoids, along with the U.S. government, and the U.S. government, for those of you out there that don't know, the United States government still holds the patent on CBD. But Dr. Mishulam, who discovered CBD, also discovered at the time, around 60 other cannabinoids. Now that's been expanded out through research in Canada and other places to about 166 plus cannabinoids. And we're starting to see viability in some of the other cannabinoids, yes. like CBN, THCA, which is the non-psychotropic version of THC. Most people don't understand that. You know, the marijuana plant has something in it called THCA that doesn't activate and turn to delta 19 until or delta 9 until it is heated. So you know, THCA 
is also another one of those categories that we know, I think when you put them all together, and there's THC, CBD, CBDV, there's THCA, there's so many different cannabinoids, when they work in an entourage effect, that may be the most effective version of the drug. Yeah, and I, Montel, I'd take it a step even further than that, saying THC, the psychoactive component of of the plant, may be part of the medicinal uh, uh, you know, e- equation as well. I think CBD, interestingly, and I'm glad you brought this up because it was never our intent to just say CBD was was it. Uh, the idea that it was a plant-based medicine, that you needed the entire plant, that there are all these components of the plant that may offer a benefit in the body. They may trigger a certain receptor. They may allow the substance to travel through the body more easily, more efficiently, whatever it might be, but that the entire plant was necessary. That was the entourage effect. And CBD, I think, you know, it's interesting, Montel, it became sort of a very convenient narrative, right, for politicians. Oh, you know, that's the non-psychoactive stuff. That's the stuff that helps kids with seizures. And that became politically much more viable within states. And in some ways, you could make the case that THC, you know, the psychoactive part of it, is getting demonized once again. I think that, you know, for some people having uh, some some THC within the medicine, it makes the medicine when it comes to neuropathic pain, for example. So yes. I think it's you got to be very careful, I think, with the CBD only legislation. I think that is a that is a I get why it's politically expedient. But if our goal and I think we're all talking about the same thing here is to look at something that could be a medicine, something that could provide help when nothing else has then I think you do have to think about the whole plant. And that might include THC as well. Maybe not always, but to simply say THC is off limits, that's more of a political argument rather than a scientific one. Absolutely. And, you know, along with the, the cannabinoids, there's phytocannabinoids. There's also things called terpenes. There's that's also right. the lipids. And the terpenes have and play just as important a role, I believe, in bioavailability. And like you said, helping them move the cannabinoids through the body. You know, if, if in fact, you, you could crystal ball this, doctor, and I know that that's something that doctors hate to do and <laughs> don't like to do, but if you could crystal ball this, do you see any movement in the next two to three years of us coming to a better understanding and allowing for at least, I mean, you know, you know me, I have been, you know, for over 20 years now out screaming that. You yes. know, the relationship that I have with my doctor should be as personal when it comes to cannabis as it is with any other drug. If my doctor says to me that I'm going to put you on chemotherapy, then nobody else has to have, should be able to participate in that conversation with me and my doctor. So if my doctor says that I think cannabis works for you, Montel, then that doctor and I should have this private conversation. Do you think we're going to hit a spot in the next two or three years where maybe doctors will start to support this more and state, yeah, let me have my private conversation with my patient. I think that the the, the irony here, perhaps, a, a bit, is that if you actually looked at some of the data, even going back to 10 years ago, about physician attitudes towards, towards cannabis as a medicine, uh, it was more accepting than I think people realize. Uh, when they were when they were surveyed and they were given specific situations, a patient is dealing with with this particular uh, issue. Would cannabis be something that you would consider recommending? You found that you know 
60 to 70% of doctors would consider it as a, as a medicine. But the medical profession, like the rest of our society, I think, was being greatly affected by the tremendous stigma around cannabis. So even though they would anonymously you know, respond to a survey saying, yes, they would consider it, uh, publicly, they wouldn't do it because they would worry that would it affect their standing within the hospital? Would it affect their standing within a medical organization? Would they themselves be stigmatized uh, as a result of showing some support for this? I think that that is, is starting to change. The support, I, again, I think is, has been there behind the scenes. What I think the recent attention and the uncovering and really bringing the science to the forefront has done is, is provided some cover for, for physicians who now say, look, you know, yeah, I, I get that there's still a stigma here, but but I'm a scientist. I, I look at data, and the data is is far more compelling than I ever realized. So I think you're going to see a a a a more obvious acceptance of this. It's been there, but I think it's going to become more apparent from the medical community over the next few years. And I think it's happening fast. I think it's happening really fast. We can say now, cannabis is a medicine. We can say that definitively. Uh, there is an FDA-approved medication. Uh, so we now know this. And once you start at that point, that's like starting you know, several, several levels higher than where we were just a few years ago. And I think that that, that, that will tr trickle into the medical profession rapidly. Well, Doctor, you also, I don't want to keep you too much longer, you, you have a, a new special getting ready to come out. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? I, I really, you know, have been interested in looking at, into an issue that you brought up earlier, which is the, the whole craze around CBD. I think what has happened, um, you know, and, and maybe this was to be expected, is that as people have uh, learned more about uh, cannabis and specifically CBD, they've started to, to show tremendous enthusiasm in, in the marketplace, buying tons of products, everything from creams to, to uh, products, you know, that they use within the home, edibles, all, all sorts of different things. And while we can say, I think, definitively that cannabis and, and CBD can be a medicine, I, one of the things I really wanted to focus in, in this next film we're making, which is our fifth weed film, is, is to, to understand what is, the, what is the real guidance that people should be receiving around CBD. Uh, who are the potentially unscrupulous players here? If you have situations where you, you're dealing with a totally unregulated market or almost completely unregulated market, um, you, you find situations where people are buying CBD and in fact not getting CBD at all or getting a much different concentration of CBD than they expected or getting something else entirely which may potentially cause them harm. So how do you sort of navigate that? How do you, uh, you know, sort of focus on the benefits that this can provide while greatly reducing or mitigating the potential harm? Um, this is here to stay. Uh, I don't think that this is a pendulum swing. I don't think we're going to say two years from now, it was a fad, it's gone. I think it's here to stay. But one of the things that threatens um, the, the, the benefit that people can get from CBD is if the unregulated market starts to turn up a bunch of stories where people were harmed in some way or didn't get what they thought. And, and, and that's a problem. So that's what I'm really focusing on here. Where does this CBD craze go from here? And what can the consumer do right now? Someone who's now interested in this, learning about it for the first time, what should they know? What should they do? 
Absolutely. And, you know, when you take a look at the, you know, I know for 100% disclosure for all the listeners out there, you know, I have a CBD product uh, now available in about 42 states across the country. And my product, um, I sought out one of the best manufacturers, I think, in the world, making sure that the product was manufactured, number one, almost on a pharmaceutical grade level, and then also didn't just want to throw a product out there that just had CBD in it, but we also look for specific terpene profiles that could help make it more bioavailable and would have an elicit a response that, you know, the patient would be looking for. But also understanding that a lot of the products out there that you, you nail it on the head, you know, and people are buying products that they think that they're getting, you know, CBD, but they're getting maybe a tenth of a gram of CBD, or a tenth of a milligram of CBD, CBD right. and the rest is nothing but fillers. I have a product in the marketplace that has 50 milligrams per gel cap. I was one of the very first people to put a gel cap in the marketplace, only because um, I wanted to make sure that, you know, patients seeking out this product got exactly what they were paying for. And I'm trying right now, my dentist, to work with companies to ensure that we do the greatest amount of research that we possibly can and look at results and see what those results show before we you know, make any claims or, or make any statements about its viability. Um, so when is your special coming out, sir? When do you think uh, uh, my special will be coming out the end of September, September 25th. And, and you know, I, I'm glad you, you, you bring this up, Montel, because I think there's a lot of good players uh, such as yourself in this space, people who are going to take the extra time, the money, the resources to ensure the things that you just mentioned, that it's a good manufacturing pra- practice, that it is a consistent product, that you're not going to buy a product uh, bottle of this stuff and each each gel cap or each pill or each dose will be something different than the next dose that that's that's really important and i think that you know what you're doing i think and what people you know who are responsible in this area are doing uh are are exactly that and and they are probably the same people who would actually welcome regulation because they don't want the fly-by-night organizations who are coming in here and saying well there's a cbd craze going on I'm going to come in here and make a quick buck and then get out of here. They don't want those folks to be a part of this equation because that ruins the entire industry and frankly feeds the, the stigmatization and demonization of this product once again. Um, that, that's so important. What we're seeing right now unfolding, again, is something you know I haven't seen in decades, a brand new class of medications. Um, and it's being driven by the public much more than uh, the the, the uh, hospitals or, or, or the pharmaceutical companies. So it's got to be done right. And and the way that you outlined it is 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 really important for people to have that faith in this product. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, well, you know, I know we're almost out of time. I want to throw out, you know, I'd like to do a little segment in every one of our podcasts about what you need to know. A lot of people don't know that cannabinoids, though they are in the distinct molecular structure that they are in the sativa marijuana plant, cannabinoids can also be found in other products. People don't know this, but cannabinoids can be found in hops, which is one of the major ingredients of beer. Right. And if you do a little research, people can understand that, you know, again, when we threw out the, the baby with the bathwater, we threw out the study of all cannabinoids. Yeah, so, I mean... That, that... No, no, no question. I mean that 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 it it all got lumped t- 
together, you know, uh, and, and again, you can trace the origins of, of when that throwing out of the baby with the bathwater happened, but I think it goes back several decades when people realized what a threat this could be to their financial bottom line. It, it, they, didn't, they didn't discriminate in this point. They just wanted it stigmatized, period. Absolutely. Well, look, I'm out of time. I got to thank you so much, Dr. Sandra, for being a part of our podcast today. And, you know, thank you for being as blunt as you've been. I'm looking forward to seeing your next special. And maybe when uh, it airs, uh, maybe you come back on. Uh, I'd be I'd be happy to, Montel. And thank you as well. I mean, you know, from all your your, your experience with, with the military and, and coming out and talking about this at a time when maybe many people within your your community weren't talking about it or felt nervous talking about it you you um you've been out there you know and um and I, that's not easy i know it's 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 hard to be to be early on talking about this stuff you get a lot of blowback and you've um, you've endured that and uh and i appreciate it i so am so appreciative of the fact that you've endured it also sir i can't imagine you know that as a neurosurgeon like yourself the pushback you got from your community but I'm glad you weathered it, you stood up, and you're ready to continue the fight. So thank you so much, Dr. Luther, for being here. And thank you all for joining us on this edition of Let's Be Blunt.